Good afternoon, my name is Aaron Mastani and you're listening to Navara FM here on Resonance 104.4 FM London. Thanks for joining us. In the studio today, I'm very happy to be joined by Francis Coppola at Francis underscore Coppola and Joel Benjamin at Gian underscore TCAT. More about that at Twitter handle later. I'm very curious as to what it means. <laughs> Francis is an associate editor at Piero.co.uk. She's a singer, teacher, financial writer and self-proclaimed bank refugee. Joel is a campaign of social change at Move Your Money, and he is currently investigating the libel scandal and PFI. Both of you welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. The story of the cooperative group, uh, which stretches not just back, you know, the last month, but the last year and a bit, encompassing narcotics, corruption, <laughs> and uh, potential insolvency, is one that will interest many people, but some of the fine details are probably unknown to the listeners. The group itself goes back over 150 years and dates back to the Rochdale pioneers. They decided that buying stuff together was cheaper, and that being a customer as well as an owner of a business was overall a good idea. Fast forward to the present. In March last year, the co-op reported an 89% stump in profits, uh, and a month later it pulled out of Project Verde. Again, more of that later. That was a plan to buy 632 Lloyd's TSB branches. A week later, on May Day 2013, Ewan Sutherland became the CEO of the group, and on the 10th of May, Moody's downgraded, uh, downgraded the co-op to junk status as a £1.5 billion capital shortfall was revealed. I want to talk about... That whole timeline of events, which includes the Reverend Flowers uh, <laughs> being being found to be uh, taking G- GHB, methamphetamine, cocaine, and cannabis. But I, I suppose we'll start with some relatively sort of elementary questions. What's gone wrong with the co-op group? Because it's not just about senior management taking drugs. It's not just about capital shortfalls. The very essence of the organisation seems up for grabs here, Joel. So where's it gone wrong? Very good question. Uh, I guess we can go back to um, 2009 when the cooperative uh, went to merge with Britannia Building Society. Um, What has subsequently emerged um, is that Britannia had a large amount of bad debts on its books at the time that merger was allowed to proceed. Uh, There's been some questions raised in terms of the role of regulators at the FSA. Um, there's been questions of political interference um, and certainly in the sort of case of the Treasury Select Committee um, some very pointed questions of management at both the cooperative bank and the cooperative group, the parent company which owned the bank in terms of why that deal was allowed to proceed. Francis, what's going on? I actually think that the problems go back further than that because the way I see it is the co-op group as a whole has overextended itself it's gone for bigger, bigger, bigger um, which is a mistake made by a lot of conglomerations um, a bit of the RBS disease in a way as far as the bank is concerned yeah. but also the acquisition of the supermarkets and so forth which Summerfield which I think was a mistake, they, they look overstretched to me, it's a sort of huge sprawling conglomerate that must be really quite difficult to manage and I wonder whether they've overstretched themselves that's a really interesting place to start. Two slightly different takes on it, I guess. I want to use today's discussion as a, a conduit for two broader debates, and they're really big debates right now. We're having um, 2014, a year away from a general election. The kinds of debates you didn't really hear, actually, in the, in the lead-up to 2010. Uh, and those are um, executive pay, 
that seems to be a really hot topic. Even, you know, end of the day, people who aren't stakeholders in the cops seem to think they have can have two bobs worth about the pay of you and Sutherland. And, you know, normally, like I say, several years ago, people said, well, it's none of your business. If you're not a stakeholder in the, in the, in the organisation, it's none of your business. If you are, then of course it is. I want to use it for that discussion, executive pay. And I also want to use it for another discussion, which is ethical capitalism. Because the question about the cooperative group here is, is it uncompetitive because of the nature of what it was, of its sort of abiding principles as an organisation and with the the recent resignation of the chief executive Ewan Sutherland done via Facebook I believe I thought it was initially a Facebook note but actually it was commenting on the Facebook page of the co-op group and this is absolutely fabulous and there's some I'll read out some of the comments later from other people in response to him but is this a case of a, a PLC culture with regards to management coming up against the cooperative culture amongst a, a very large membership so let's start with that first point about executive pay maybe Francis, you can talk about you and Sutherland. Do you, do you think he was paid too much, and how much was he being paid? I mean, it's something like he was. In, it looks like a three million pound a year package, all in all, yes, wasn't it he for was. this year? Um, it was. It was made up of three different things. I mean, mm. his actual base salary was about one and a half million, but then they added a retention payment on that and a bonus. Um, and there was a question about buying out some share incentives that he'd had at King, Kingfisher, his previous employer. And there was a question about whether the co-op, you know, members really should have been paying for. Um, performance bonuses that he'd he'd um, earned while he was at Kingfisher. Mm. I do think that's a little bit questionable. Um, but there is also the question about whether a pay package of that scale is appropriate for a chief executive of a, a business that is in really quite severe trouble. We would normally expect that um, a bonus, something like that, would be a payment for uh, results achieved, not results that are promised. Anything to say about that? I've got a great. I've got, I'll read this quote here from Will. This is a great quote. I don't really quote Will Hutton uh, with much, much, much kind of uh, positivity, as listeners might sometimes know. But on this occasion, he's not wrong. There's a piece he wrote for the Observer last weekend uh, regarding um, pay for the whole of uh, upper management, not just Sutherland, but mm. here in respect to Rebecca Skip, perhaps that's a more that's actually a, a worse case of what we're talking about here. I quote Will Hutton, One result is the astounding payoff for the human relations director. In February, Rebecca Skitt was told she was to be exited, quote-unquote, for reasons that did not amount to dismissal, to minimise disruption and to achieve a clean break. She is to be paid 100% retention payment for both 2013 and 14, even though she isn't being retained. This comes with a third of her entitlement to the long-term incentive plan as a good lever, even though she no longer has, has to be incentivised in the long term. The total payoff is well worth over £2 million for 11 months' work. It is mind-boggling, and this in an organisation that claims to provide Itself on its ethical principles and cooperative values. She hasn't received no more than an almighty bung in a wider remuneration frame that, that's been, that has taken incentivization to gothic levels of irrationality. The remuneration committee, advised by consultants New Bridge Street, who both advise, advise 40% of Britain's top 350 companies, has put one reference point down, alignment with the market. So is this a case of alignment with the market, alignment with the market which is broadly composed of PLCs, right? Mm -hmm. Public limited companies. This sure. is a very different kind of company. So I guess that's sort of synthesised the two points I really, really want to address today. Is that instructive of a broader issue here that members want a cooperative and management and other people want a public limited company? Sure. So I think you've got a, um, a structural problem in terms of high executive pay universally. Um, yes. Obviously, that's been a problem not just for the cooperative, but for other mutuals like Nationwide, um, constantly criticised for its high pay ratios. Mm -hmm. So I think we've got a broader problem here and um, it's perhaps exacerbated in a cooperative structure because you've got the members fighting for higher pay um, and pay being you know, driven down by those at the top 
and the management saying, you know, we need to pay high salaries to attract the best talent. So um, I think, you know, we need to tackle the structural issue of high pay and not just perhaps point fingers at the, the cooperative. Mm, but so, so there's a tension here then, because with, with, a, with a cooperative or with the cooperative group, members are owners, right? So if you're saying we want to recruit the best talent and you're saying, well, I'm actually a shareholder in this business and my pay, and that's exactly what it is, is being forced down because you're giving these people so much to do so little in terms of substantive outcomes, that's got much more of attention than it would be for somebody who has shares in RBS when the chief executive of RBS I actually don't agree with that. Go on. Um, because I think shareholders in PLCs have exactly the same issue, yeah. that their dividends, their payouts, their, their return is diminished by the amount that is paid to executives. We have a general issue worldwide, I would say, with very high salaries going to top executives for what at times looks like not very much. And that kind of feeds into the whole debate that has been going on worldwide about the growth of inequality, particularly in developed countries. Um, it is something that I think we need to address. So, I mean, that ties in with ideas about the shareholder spring. I think it was like last year the FT was yes, running on this, Barclays. right? Barclays. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, Sutherland's just resigned because he's saying that the group's ungovernable. So what's the difference here between co-op members and, you know, shareholder and Barclays, for instance? I mean, why is he saying it's ungovernable? Is there a different, is there a, is there a, a different kind of reaction or is it something else? I don't think this is about pay. I really don't. That was just one uh, among many things. What appears to have happened is that over some time now, the the actual co-op board itself has been, shall we say, not exactly backing him up. There have been a series of leaks which come from the board or close to it. That was his, that was his assertion. Yes, right? absolutely. From, and not just the pay. That was, that was what came out on, uh, in the Observer. But that was only one of a series of leaks. There were others as well. Um, the, the information about the potential sale of the farms was leaked. Mm -hmm. And indeed, the final board meeting when Sutherland tried and Lord Miners tried to force through the governance reforms, the result of that meeting was also immediately leaked to the press straight after the meeting. And Sutherland resigned after that. And he said he'd resigned on a point of principle. And if he's basically saying that I can't work while well, I'm being constantly undermined by somebody leaking stuff to the press that shouldn't be going to the press yet... So senior leaks rather yeah. than an organisation senior leaks. leaks. Right, yeah. yeah. Sure. Um, sorry, I lost my thought. Come back. No, 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 no. <laughs> transfer. I'm going to go to some of these Facebook comments. They're absolutely priceless. Well, this is the comment that Sutherland wrote on the co-op page on Facebook. Um, I'm very sorry to have to report that we've had yet another leak to the media. It appears that, once again, the leak has come from our group boardroom. We seem to have an individual... I mean, this sounds almost sort of paranoid, right? Mm. We seem to have an individual or individuals determined to undermine, undermine me personally, my team and the rest of the group board. And these are some of the replies. Good to see that even with the company going down the pan, you can still get your bonus. Another one. Have we totally lost the plot? I think so. Hi, Ewan. Can you please justify why bonuses are paid when the bank is making a loss? It's worse than it seems. These are retention bonuses, so Ewan can perform woefully. But as long as he stays put, he'll get it. Unbelievable. Some more here. After 40 years, I'm looking for another bank. The only thing keeping me here at the moment is concern for the employees lower down the tree. A real CEO would have deferred any increase until the mess is sorted. No man is worth all this money. Well, no man or woman. <clears throat> uh, some more. I've had a co-op bank account for almost 40 years. This is the end of it. I'll have, mo I'll have nothing more to do with the co-op. Somebody else saying the same thing. They've been a member for 25 years. I I I'll reintroduce some of those points about people sort of being turned off by the possibility of the cooperative being a an ethical actor in the market. Um, so you and Sutherland's gone. Uh, a lot of these problems still remain. Mm -hmm. um, 
executive pay we will get back to that broader question the cooperative i mean you've already said this francis the cooperative business models they've got so many sort of yeah. fingers industrial fingers and so many different pies what areas are competitive and what ones aren't and why well, what I'm going to say might surprise people, because despite all its problems, and they are very considerable, the bank itself, if the capital problems and so forth can be fixed, really does have a distinctive niche position, um, which is hard to fill. So I think it has potential. I wouldn't like to see that go. Um, and there are other areas where the co-op, I think, has a competitive advantage, like funeral parlours, for example, where it's the market leader. Um, oddly enough, it is its core offering, what it's always regarded as being this is what we're about, which is the retail, the supermarkets, where I can't see how they're distinctive. Mm. I can't see how in today's really very cutthroat supermarket um, food retailing marketplace, how they offer something that is distinctive enough at a competitive price to enable them to continue with that. So if it was me, I would be looking seriously at where they really do have a competitive advantage and a distinctive offering, mm. concentrate on those, and potentially slaughter some sacred cows. Well, the thing is that they're basically saying they want to double the number of convenience stores from two to 4,000. They want to halve the number of larger supermarkets, and they want to yeah. sell off the pharmacy. So it looks like they're actually going to really focus on what you're talking about as their Achilles heel, which is... Yeah grocery shopping, I suppose, probably in London, if it's going to be the smaller shops or maybe cities. I think that would be a mistake. Their core is, an, is up the north. Is up north. Yeah. And in London, they're up against Tesco's mm. on cor corner shops. And that's quite a formidable force. Yeah, so you're saying that they should basically exit exit retail. They should stick to banking and funeral parlours. No, I'm not saying that. I'm, and I think the, the decision to move more towards small scale yeah. corner shopping is right. But they just need to be aware of what the marketplace is. And the marketplace is com fierce competition from Tesco's and now from Sainsbury's as well yeah. in that space. Um, and they need to think geographically about where their strength is. Mm. Their strength is not in London. Their strength is in the, the northern towns, the old industrial heartlands. That's where their loyal customer base is. Joe, are they competitive where why and where they aren't why not on the on the point of these supermarkets i mean i read a an article by uh, peter marks the former co-op group ceo and so he was remarking on the transition to market share the co-ops enjoyed which back in 1967 when he started was around 25 percent of the grocery market um that has since slipped to about six percent um today so i mean they've lost a, a fair chunk of that grocery market um, in the banking arm, as uh, Francis, Francis mentioned, there's a you know, hugely um, supportive um, and loyal customer base across the bank. Yes. Um, the co-op were the market leader in public sector banking in the UK with about 35% market share. And their ethical banking policy gave them a distinct advantage as the only um, bank with an ethical policy um, on high streets in the UK. So it's unfortunate that the, um, you know, the bank seems to have suffered such a major setback. So this is a, a, a sort of keep keep on that uh, topic. This loyal customer base with regards to the co-op bank is that justified? Is it actually a, an ethical bank? <laughs> That's uh, a good question. Big question. Is it an ethical bank? Is it any different to the rest of the banks? Yes and no. I would say from the the way it's behaved towards its customer base has not been particularly ethical, and particularly actually the way it behaved towards its small investors, I thought was really quite bad. Um, and I found some of the attitudes of, of cooperators in that quite heartless when I was on the Ways Forward conference. thought, oh, for goodness sake, these were pensioners who'd bought these, these things as part of their pension. How can you simply say, well, they knew what they're getting into, they should just accept the loss? You know, so it was a bit kind of, ugh, I thought. Um, 
On the other side of that, their commitment to ethical investing mm. is second to none. And for people who want ethical investments, who want their money used in a way that fits with, say, a green agenda and, and so forth, it is still probably the best place to put their money. You think that's a, that's a niche market which they occupy pretty well, you're saying? Yes, absolutely. Sure. I mean, are they... Are they? Because, look, the, everybody talks about, you know, people think about the 2008 crisis, credit crunch, there was no liquidity between banks, interbank lending, all of a sudden everybody's talking about interbank lending, interest rates, stuff nobody ever talked about before. You know, there wasn't it was 0.01% of the population knew what it even meant. All of a sudden, you know, people were talking about this stuff, it was on the front page of the Metro or whatever, interbank lending's freezing up. The cooperative bank was you know lending money from the bank of england like anybody else was right so sure. what makes this any different to other banks if you've not got a pension as you're saying like you know or a isa or whatever that you're looking for ethical you know quote unquote returns on if you just got a current account with the co-op it's no different to anybody else really right i think the major difference between the co-op and if you take an example like a bank like barclays um is the firstly the ethical investment policy so customers can have a level of assurance that the cooperative bank um you know won't be investing in products and companies which are in breach of you know, human rights. Mm. Um, they have you know, requirements around ecological impact. Um, they have concerns regarding animal welfare, um, certainly with regard to arms investment, cluster bombs. You know, I've been one of the leading backers of fair trade. So I think the investment policy itself yeah. is actually quite sound for a high street bank. Um, they also are more transparent than the sort of high street to be the foul banks. I'd have to disagree with you there, Joel. I'm sorry. I've looked at the co-ops accounts and I have serious concerns about their transparency. In terms of investment, not yeah. necessarily the oh, management right, okay. processes. Yes, but I, I think the transparency yeah, thing is, is distinctly... So I think on the other side of that coin, you've got the, um, the customer experience and the cooperative have not been fantastic when it comes to um, dealing with customers. They're it's I really shoddy, right? The it's I, a bad bank. The IT platforms are historic. Yeah. Um, had, to say the least. They've had major problems trying to integrate Britannia Bank into the cooperative, um, which has caused you know a significant part of the loss um, we talked about earlier. They so, haven't actually integrated it at all, though, have they? Because they've still got... I mean, they've still got two head offices. Sure, some in, <laughs> ongoing issues with IT. Um, so... But I think, you know, getting back to the issue about transparency, I mean, 35% of people have no idea where the money they invest in the bank actually goes. So I think where the cooperative adds value is that it has an investment policy which gives customers a level of assurance. Uh, it's by no means the market leader. I mean, if you look at Triodos Bank, they list all this of their... There's another ethical bank, right? Triodos Bank. Exactly. So they list all of their bank loans on their website. You can go and scrutinise that. So, I mean, that is complete transparency. They're not quite there, but they're certainly the best of the high street banks. And that's a benchmark you think that the co-op could perhaps aim at? Potentially. But I mean, it's still deeply imbricated, right, within the kind of the broader arch the sort of broader financial architecture. It's not that different. I mean, it's yeah, sort of slightly different. It sort of mitigates, you know, some of the worst parts of contemporary finance. But it's not, you know, people talk about ethical banking, right? I mean, it's not. I mean, it's, we'll get we'll get to the, the point. Yeah, you know, you're part of, for instance, the move your move your money campaign, and you're trying to advise people or trying to expedite, you know, this broader conversation, but also just people to actually take the money out of their bank and put it elsewhere. It doesn't seem to be like the cops the best place. I mean, it's. Unless you're investing in something, right? I mean, I mean, it seems the like major, the major advantage of the co-op is that it's a brand that people recognise. So I think a lot of the other alternative banks like Triodos, um, very few people have heard of them, and they're geographically isolated and you know, perhaps got a head office in Bristol, don't have a huge amount of branches across the country. So if you're you know, advising a friend oh, on a movie of money from HSBC, for instance, where do you go? 
then your choices are limited either by the branch network, um, perhaps some of the alternative banks, maybe we're talking about credit unions, don't have a current account. Yeah. Um, Triados, for instance, don't have a current account currently. They're working on it. Um, so the problem is that many of the alternative banks, building societies, credit unions do not have national coverage. Um, mm-hmm. They are quite small scale. So again, we come back to the original problem, and that is that in the UK, we've got these five big banks with 90% market share and a very small number of alternative banks. Why, so, is, why is that? One of the main reasons is that the big five banks monopolise the payment platform systems. So the back-end architecture of the bank is owned by the big five, and that has been a historical barrier um, to competition because the big five are charging exorbitant rents for new banks. So when, Metro, when Metro Bank... True. When Metro it's Bank launched in, hold, hold that thought, Francis. Go on, so finish uh, your the point. The payment job. systems are separate companies. I think the only one where the where the big banks are owners is the um, link network, link, link network, the ATMs. So okay, so Francis. But what, otherwise, you'd look at companies like Visa. What's the reason? Why why are, why have the big five been the big five for so long? Why? Well, have, simply because it, it, it's a long-standing historical issue. This I don't think people realise that the UK has always had a two-tier banking system. It goes back a very long time. We've always had a small number of what were known as clearing banks and a much larger number of what you might call deposit takers and lenders. And we've always had that. And in a way, that structure where we've got, say, five big banks, and it's not usually been much more than five or six, really, um, plus... Um, sometimes it was more, sometimes it was less. We've actually got, because um, Co-op is actually a clearing bank and Tesco's will be, we're sort of gradually creeping up on the number of actual clearing banks we've got. Those are banks that have direct access to the payment net- network and access to liquidity from the Bank of England. All other um, banks and building societies that offer current accounts offer those services through one of the clearing banks. And it's always operated like that. So in a way, we've got a historical problem here about how we do payments in so, this country. So these, uh, so these, uh, you know, credit unions, for instance, London Credit Union or something. Yeah. That, London Mutual Credit Union. That has to go through one account, of these clearing banks, right? It's so, operated by Barclays. So it's essentially no different if you bank with them or if you bank with Barclays with regards to what's happening with your money when it's going through the clearing system. For a current account, yes. Yeah. And so I would say that the current account marketplace is very thin because even if you have a current account with a smaller institution, it's still going to be, at, all the payments will be, um, which is the point of a current account, isn't, yeah. isn't it, let's face it, will be administered so by the clearing clearing bank behind it. Ethically, and I've got sort of, mm. sort of you know, a little quote, quotation, was it ethically, if you've just got a current account and you've got a couple of hundred quid in it to pay your bills and your rent yeah. or whatever, it's no different having it in a credit union than having it in Barclays Bank. No different at all. There, there is no difference. Where it makes a difference is in is in your savings accounts yeah. and in what and in borrowing. Um, that's where the differences make. And actually, we do have a much much more competitive marketplace in both of those than we do in current. I mean, accounts. we know Brit, most Brits don't save, not very much. Younger people, if they're you know, younger, <laughs> they do borrow though. I do borrow. Actually. But if you're young, if you're a sort of student, you just graduated, you're saying, "What's yeah. my best option?" You've got a couple of hundred quid in the bank, you're working minimum yeah. wage job until you get something on the you know, some graduate recruitment scheme. I mean, it's clear, you know. And they're thinking of going to one of these credit unions. I mean, it's pointless, right? I wouldn't say it's pointless. I mean, when you look at sort of people uh, and their sort of you know their behaviour in terms of you know who they bank with, um, typically people are more likely to yeah. break up with their sort of partner than they are to change banks. <laughs> so once you've kind of gone to the hassle of kind of switching banks, and um, you know as of last September, um, you know the time it takes to switch has been reduced to one week, um, you're likely to stay there. 
So once you you know have a relationship with that bank, you're more likely to take out a mortgage with them in the future. So you know that taking that first step and switching a bank account may be you know part of a broader journey in terms of you know diversifying a pension fund or diversifying other financial products you may have. So I wouldn't say it's useless, but um, mm-hmm. while we have a system which is monopolised by a small number of payment providers, yeah. um, there are systemic problems that need to be resolved. Yeah. So here's a question. People always talk about competition, the sure. market competition. That seems remarkably uncompetitive if you've got essentially a so it's an oligopoly, right, in terms yes, of how the clearing system works. Yes. So it's by nature not competitive. I mean, that's what... I mean, Ed Miliband, for instance, been talking about we want more competition with retail banks, but that seems implausible. I'm not convinced, um, and particularly where the, mar- where the current account marketplace is concerned, I'm not convinced that more competition is the answer. Because I think we're dealing with something that approximates now to a public utility, really. And there is a question whether some of these things are more like natural monopolies. I know the Bank of England, and Andy Haldane at the Bank of England, has been arguing that we should be having a common payments gateway um, so that small smaller banks can directly access the payment systems rather than having to go through bigger banks. But we're a long long way off that. And if the Bank of England is suggesting it, then you're not looking at a commercial bank, um, a commercial company providing it, are you? You're potentially looking at public investment. So you would say a, state, a state-run bank potentially would be... I would like to see a, a, a public utility for payments. I'm, I've said that publicly myself. I think that we need three things. We need a state... Um, public utility for payments so that all the the service providers, the little banks and so forth, can have direct access to payments so they really can offer payments from their accounts. I think we need, um, probably need a a state um, facility for um, what we might call uncompetitive savings, which is... um, you know, people saving small amounts and actually trying to get some kind of decent interest rate for them, and probably for some forms of vanilla lending. So, you know, I think we have sidelined the state sector a bit too much in our banking, really. So not more competition, but, if anything, a, a larger role for the state. Joe, what? I think it probably comes back to the idea of diversity. So at the moment we've got, again, five large banks, broadly similar, universal banks, um, if you look at sort of um, you know subnational bank assets in the UK, um, there are about I think three percent of all bank assets. You compare that to the US, maybe a third of all bank assets are owned by kind of you know subnational or regional banks. In Germany, as much as the two thirds. Yeah. So we don't have a diverse banking landscape. We don't have alternative types of banks. Um, we don't have regional banks. Is there uh, a historic reason for that? Is it just the historic pull of the City of London, or? Um. The, I mean, the US is a federal the, state system. I mean, is, is that it? Is it just yeah, imitating? At the, at the risk of sounding like it, like a kind of sort of a hard-nosed capitalist, I would say if we haven't got regional banks, it's because regional banks actually aren't very successful. Um, we have in this country had a long-standing t- tradition of universal and branch banking. Um, it's worth remembering that in other countries they haven't always had that. The states, for example, actually banned um, branch banking for a long time and interstate banking and they've got thousands and thousands of small banks but that's because they force them to be like that yeah. um, and there are other countries like Canada for example that have you know, some large universal banks just as we do uh, it's almost like a, um, a historical and cultural reason for it um, Germany has very much promoted its small bank network and it is state supported I don't think people realise that it's not a private it's not really a private sector network at all Is the German banking system a sort of uh, is that a, a totem of where the UK should go I mean 
it seems to be Ugh. it seems to be such a you know it's like uh, the UK now likes to sort of really look look to Germany in a number of areas industrial policy but mm. banking as well regional banking is that because you know the Labour Party talking about in their next manifesto investment banks and so on again imitating the German industrial bank model is this regional bank thing something that the UK should look at? Well, I think it's probably a step in the right direction. I mean, my my take on it is that we perhaps should be looking more at the uh, model offered by the Bank of North Dakota in the US, which is a... That's a very uh, esoteric answer. Uh, a municipal um, publicly owned bank, yep. um, and it's been yeah, set up to invest in um, public infrastructure, and the idea is that, you know, by investing in infrastructure across the state, um, that interest, you know, any interest being paid is then paid back into state coffers, and that's used to fund further development. The problem in the UK is that you know when these banks are funding regional infrastructure, um, you know they're not paying the UK tax. Um, a lot of the money gets routed via London, so the benefits of any regional spend don't really sort of trickle down to the regional economies. So I mean, regional banking may help, uh, but I think having a mix of different types of banks and different size banks is um, certainly a step in the right direction. I think that there's kind of an awful warning in in Europe. I mean, I'm not opposed to regional banks by any means. I think the idea of having um, regional municipal banks to tar, um, if you like, taking in savings and recycling them into long-term infrastructure developments, developments in that area is an absolutely brilliant idea and something I'd like to see the larger larger local authorities doing. It ties in very much with what I was saying about savings and, mm-hmm. and, and investments in the state sector. I think it would be an excellent idea. We do have to be a little bit careful because there are some awful examples of very bad um, regional banks. Spain, right? Spain, but also Germany. The Landesbank in Germany oh, are a true. disaster. Yeah, yeah. Um, IKB was the first bank to fail in the financial crisis, um, and they still haven't sorted out their Landesbank and sector, um, which are pretty much propped up by their savings I mean, banks. They're hugely undercapitalised, aren't they? They're hugely. Yeah. Yes. They're, they're, they're like kind of drunks propped up by lots of little banks underneath them. Return back to Sutherland and the cooperative. Um, in the sort of the recapitalisation of the bank that uh, took place last year, Sutherland oversaw uh, the involvement of hedge funds and other institutional investors taking a 70% stake in the lender. So the question is, to, to what extent is the co-op bank still a cooperative if it's not. these other institutions have a majority share in the organisation? It never was. Okay, never, so the co-op bank was never the a cooperative. The co-op bank itself was never a cooperative. It was 100% owned by a cooperative, yeah. but the co-op bank itself was a PLC. Um, and it had, uh, having said that it was 100% owned by the co-op group, which is a mutual, um, it also had a number, quite an extensive number of, of small investors who had what you might call bonds, but they were kind of convertible bonds, like preference shares, and they were known as um, permanent interest-bearing shares, and which came from Britannia, and then there were some preference shares from the co-op. So they were like hybrid instruments. What was happening was that, that the co-op, when the black hole was discovered in the co-op bank's finances, the co-op group wanted all of those converted to equity so that those shareholders, in effect, would become the owners of the bank. It was an absolute rotten deal for them. They lost their permanent dividends, for starters. This was the bail-in. Yeah, this yeah. was the, ba- the proposed bail-in. Yeah. But they were also going to lose a substantial amount of their investment. And these were not, um, you know, sort of big city fat cats and things like that. They were grannies, mm. pensioners. And there was a bit of a hoo-ha about it. I mean, there was quite a sort of huge media storm about it. And we ended up with a rather unedifying spectre of two hedge funds coming in and saying, never mind, we'll make you a better offer to these pensioners 
and actually managing to look friendlier than the, than the mutual, than the co-op group. I mean, this was not a good situation. It was very badly handled from a PR point of view from the co-op group, I would say. Well, Joel, this is a bit strange. A bank is called the Cooperative Bank, and yet it's a public limited company, yeah. not a cooperative. I mean, that's something almost seems like false advertising to me. I didn't know that. Well, I, I, I hadn't really thought about it. I mean, obviously, you know, if I, on reflection, of course it's a PLC, but uh, that's a bit strange, no? I uh, agree. I mean, I think a lot of people are still confused to this day about the exact nature of the relationship between the cooperative group, the you know, cooperative parent company, and the bank, which um, you know, is now and always was a PLC. And I think Frances has got a fair point when she says that you know, that differentiation was perhaps never communicated yeah. well enough to bank customers. Um, I also think there's a question mark regarding how well the implications of that structure were known by the board. And the reason I say that is because um, when this black hole was discovered and Moody's downgraded the cooperative bank's debt to junk status, um, that limited the cooperative group's options in terms of rescuing the bank. Um, ordinarily, if you're a PLC, um, you just sort of tap capital markets and um, you know, you'd get people to sort of you know, invest in the bank, raise more shares, and you know, problem solved. Because the cooperative parent couldn't do that, that's why we then got into a situation where you had sort of hedge funds coming in aggressively, buying up the debt and sort of taking control of the bank. So I think, again, in terms of the behaviour of management of the cooperative bank, um, perhaps you know, looking at an aggressive merger with Britannia in 2009 in retrospect doesn't look like such a great idea. We'll go back to Britannia in one minute. Quick question: Why did <clears throat> why did the <clears throat> pardon me why did the cooperative uh, not resort to taking money from taxpayers? Why did it choose to have up to seventy percent of the bank be purchased by it hedge was, funds and other people? I mean, why was that any more ethical than having state intervention briefly for a couple of years? It wasn't offered state intervention. It's as simple as that, and it actually became a bit of a matter of pride, I think, with the co-op group management that they were not going to ask for a bailout. It was going to be refused anyway. No way was a a conservative Democrat, a liberal, liberal Democrat coalition government going to agree to another bailout with it, with, when, it, when they were already dealing with a, what they call a black hole in the um, yeah. uh, public they finances. Kept, they could have kept it off the books, couldn't they? Uh, no. <laughs> sure they, but I, I, I think it would have been, I mean, it would have been extraordinarily unpopular. Um, with 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 the population at yeah. large, I mean the, the extent of the bailouts and and the ongoing problems in RBS and all the rest of it, it yeah. was going to happen. So mm. they didn't they didn't think they would get a bailout, but more importantly, they didn't want a bailout. They wanted to be able to say we've solved this ourselves without having to go to the government. Silly them, Joel. Just on the point of bailout, um, as of September last year, the official Bank of International Settlements policy has actually shifted from one where you know bailouts are theoretically allowed to a policy of bail-in. We saw this with Cyprus um, yep. last year. So in Cyprus, anyone with deposits in excess of 100k, um, they were seized up to I think about 45% were you know retained and used to recapitalise the bank. So in terms of you know the next crisis we're likely to see. Um, I think one thing for people to be aware of is, um, you know, any deposits in a bank over 85k in the UK um, are now, you know, liable to be seized and converted into equities in the bank to, um, you know, resolve a 
a failed bank. So a bit of crystal ball gazing. You're saying that what happened in Cyprus with the bail-in and taking, skimming a bit of, well, not just a bit, a fair old bit, right, of relatively large deposits in banks. You're saying that that would be the solution next time we see a financial I crisis. I think we should bear that in mind in relation to the background to the co-op problems as well because it was all happening at around the same time. Um, the Cyprus bail-in was not long before the Moody's, Moody's downgrade that triggered all this. Um, it would not have been lost on people that the UK is a member of the EU and the European Union was heading in the direction of bail-ins, depositor bail-ins. So I think there was also an element of we really don't want to go down the route of having to admit we're in trouble and facing depositor bail-ins. As it was, they were already facing bail-in of small investors whose debt, whose contribution is what we call subordinate so to depositors. So before a bailout, you're saying that the, the solution may, yeah. may have been before a conventional yeah. bailout like 2008? Yeah, to seize large deposits, yes, which would have hit things like local authorities. So that was a really a real possibility oh, yes. last year? Yes, absolutely. Blimey. Let's return back to Britannia. So uh, this is a very interesting little episode. Joel, Britannia, so you, I, I interrupted you. I hope not. Uh, I hope it wasn't too. Uh, too sure. So it's, yeah. In terms of the um, the merger between the cooperative and Britannia, um, point I was making earlier was you know the do we adequately understand the sort of role that um, advisors on that deal like uh, J P Morgan, Citigroup, uh, K P M G. Um, had in terms of the advice they gave to both the cooperative and Britannia. Um, there's certainly an ongoing question mark as to you know, whether or not um, critical information was communicated to both parties. Um, and certainly there you know, were concerns that, as mentioned earlier, the, the bad debts on the Britannia loan book were not made apparent until well after the what merger was had that? taken place. Something fishy? Francis? I think this comes back to my earlier point about transparency. Um, whether it was deliberate concealment or whether it was just didn't look at it, I don't know. But the fact is that it appears that the co-op group or the co-op bank more accurately didn't look at the real state of the loan book it acquired from Britannia until 2012. It How come? I mean, these are big sums of money and mm. these are people paid big sums of money. So... Uh, what, why? I mean, this seems to be history repeating stuff. So ABN AMRO and RBS, well, Lloyds and HBOS. So. Not like Lloyds and HBOS, and I would dearly like to know what political pressure was uh, was applied to co-op to take over Britannia. Um, but it was presented to the world as a friendly merger, and there were some questions asked at the time about why was Britannia doing this, because it didn't look that good for Britannia. Um, but, you know, it potentially gave them the, the capability to offer current accounts and things like that. And yet none of that has happened. It's never been integrated. They've still got two head offices. You know, the IT systems have never been integrated. They've got duplication of branches. I mean, some towns even have both a Britannia branch and a co-op branch on the same high street. It's never been done. So it looks very much to me like it was actually a rescue, which was hidden somehow. So you think there's political oversight with regards to the cop well, buying I would like Britannia. to know what was going on. Yes. No, I would agree with that and certainly I think that has continued um, right up until the Project Verde um, proposed acquisition of the Lloyds branches. So I mean even there you see um, political support for um, that deal. Yeah. I think the, there, was, there was two potential deals on the table um, to take over the Lloyds branches. Uh, the co-op deal was favoured and it, it appears the reason it was favoured is because uh, people in power wanted there to be a challenger bank to the big five. So if you had, you know, cooperative bank now merged with, you know, an element of Lloyd's, 
huge branch network and would be a, a true competitor to the two big defales on the high street. And I think there was a lot of political support for that eventuality because people were so fed up with yeah. the big five banks and the way they've been treated since the since the crisis. And they wanted, you know, this idea of a ethical bank mm. on the high street that could be in competition. And so this, I mean, this sounds brilliant. So Project Verde, you're saying, is arguably political. Upset. Now, now, because obviously this is last year, we're not just talking about the Labour Party, but also the con- mm-hmm. Conservative and Liberal Democrat parties, the, the constituent parties of the present coalition government. I mean, this sounds, I think this is quite an appealing hypothesis, right? So you're basically saying that they would have sort of, they would have shoved this through Project Verde and then they sort of have to be able to say, look, you know, we've capitalism's learned its lessons. Look, you go down your local high street and there's a cooperative bank and that's the insurgent and that's a more ethical kind of capitalism. And that would have won them real political capital with regards to a kind of solution post-crisis, uh, retail banking, post-crisis political economy of retail banking, right? I mean, that's... Yes. It, it does look very much like that. I mean, and again, we don't know... What was going on? I mean, there are an extraordinary number of rev- reviews into what went wrong with the co-op, and you know, I'm aware that what we're talking about is still subject to review. Um, you know, it'd be interesting to see what the findings are about, you know, from the Treasury Select Committee about um, the causes of the collapse of the Verdi, of the Verdi deal, and also Ke- Sir Christopher Kelly's review into um, the circumstances surrounding the takeover of Britannia. Um, you know, so we have to be a little careful in what we say. But to me, it does look like a sort of a a continual stream of kind of political agendas pushing things in particular ways. I mean, just come back to the Britannia takeover for a minute. The background to that was in 2009 um, that quite a few building societies got into trouble in the aftermath of the um, financial crisis. I know there's a popular view that it was all the too-big-to-fail banks, but it actually wasn't. Um, there were a number of building societies um, that got in trouble. Dunfermline Building Society was actually nationalised and then bought by Nationwide, but Nationwide actually bought, swallowed two other building societies at that time as well. Pretty much all of them, right? Can Pretty much. Uh, and and they got into trouble for the same reasons as the banks. They'd been borrowing too much on the interbank markets and lending it out at too high risk. And it, and it, and it, when the property markets in America and and the UK got into trouble, they they got they their their lending got into trouble. I mean, it's the same thing. Um, I find it difficult to believe that Britannia wasn't caught up in with that. In that, in fact, the 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 state what we now know about its commercial property lending, but particularly suggested it very much was. So it looks like a rescue. Um, of one of the UK's biggest building societies by a much smaller bank, and I find it hard to believe there isn't a political agenda there. You don't agree. Yeah, you you agree. Okay, so H. Boss and Lloyd's. I mean, that was almost certainly the case, right? I mean, that's, there's yeah. actually a lot of sort of quite explicit evidence to, to point that way. Um, but it's. I mean, and again, like you say, these are only hypotheses, right? Yeah, Nobody's sure. claiming anything, of course, but it's a pretty astonishing thing if you've got actually consensus within the major three parties to be doing this kind of stuff within mm. several years of the crisis. I mean, I understand one party doing it. I understand, you know, um, uh, you know, Lord Miners and uh, Gordon Brown and uh, various other sort of apparatchiks around the this coterie he had around the G20 meeting in 2000, early 2009, and they yeah. came up with all these solutions to the crisis. But that seems to have perhaps been absorbed by the present government, and they're doing quite similar things. Yes. Plausibly. Right. So, uh, I guess we've got... How long have we got left? We have... 
We have just under 20 minutes left. You're listening to Navarra FM, Resonance 104.4 FM, London. My name's Aaron Bastani. We're talking about the Cooperative Bank. We're talking about, we've talked about high pay for chief execs. We've talked about the fact that the Coop Bank isn't actually a cooperative, it's a PLC. Just under 20 minutes left. I want to talk about ethical capitalism and the future of organisations that embody the kinds of values that the Coop claims to claims to have embodied so here's a quote from anthony hilton in today's evening standard it's a pre-record so it'll be yesterday's evening standard for listeners uh co-op row begs the question what is business for uh quote the row which led to the abrupt departure from the corp of its chief executive ewan sutherland earlier this week is essentially a row about what business is for he saw his job as maximizing the group's value by making it as efficient as profitable as he could other board members, perhaps reflecting the deeply embedded culture of the co-op, seem to have taken the view that profit was not the be-all and end-all. What business is for is a question we do not ask often enough, and there is clearly not just one answer. Some say it's to maximise returns to the owners, others to deliver value to its customers. Others again seek to optimise but balance returns to all stakeholders, shareholders, customers, employees and suppliers. In general, this view holds that if business is not seen to benefit the whole of society, it will not last for very long. This is Martin van der Veer in the Spectator blog. The benign alternative form of capitalism that the COP represents is now on the edge of collapse. Survival for diminished retail and funeral business may come at the cost of closing down the bank. Uh, you disagreed with that as a, a, a great way to go. Yeah. But So the question here is, there's a, there's a, a, a kind of capitalism is up for debate right now with the cooperative group more broadly, right, uh, Francis? Yes. Um, the co-op group actually had, well, the co-op, the cooperative movement had a conference recently looking at the where the cooperative movement was going, particularly the future of the co-op group and its bank, in the light of what's happened. Mm-hmm. And there was a considerable degree of soul-searching, I would say. Um, what the... It's almost like they need to go back to the principles on which they were founded and kind of rediscover themselves. Um, Richard Edgar at the ITV said that the whole co-op situation, the the battle in the boardroom between Sutherland and the old guard of of the co-op, it's almost like a battle for the soul of the movement. And I do see that kind of struggle going on, that kind of tension, and it's interesting to see how it will pan out. The corpse movement themselves are in- incredibly open to ideas. They are, they, they've got their own kind of democratic processes for getting ideas from, from the cooperators, from their membership, and trying to make changes from the grassroots upwards. And some of their, their suggestions are eminently sensible. So we have a bit of a tension between those who want to impose change from the top and those who see it coming up through a democratic process from the bottom. Well, Sutherland's been compared to Pol Pot. Because, yeah. you know, he had a, this in the FT a few <laughs> days ago. I mean, that's not just the sort of denigrating him to be a you know, particularly aggressive personality, but it was just saying he was treating things like a very sort of year zero approach, right? Whereas you're dealing with an organisation which has a, uh, an organisational ethos of you know, nearly 170 years. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this is, a, like we said, the, you know, community ownership actually has been a, a big topic. You know, for football clubs, for instance, um, mutualisation of the post office was touted. So it's a, it's a big thing. A lot of people are talking about it. You know, John Lewis capitalism is being talked about by everyone. And let's not forget about our biggest, our biggest financial mutual as well, which is the Nationwide. Good point. So we, th- this, this whole sort of debate about ethical capitalism has informed a lot of Ed Miliband's kind of... Um, Rhetoric, uh, especially surrounding the banks, um, especially surrounding the, the future of retail banking. Uh, to what extent do you think that's going to, well, the co-op, the direction of the cooperative group? To what extent do you think that's going to inform that debate, that narrative, the direction in which this particular thing goes? You know, is that going to blunt or sharpen that argument? 
Personally, I think the argument is more to do with the future of a bank like RBS than it is about the co-op. I think, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, whether people, you know, agree with the bank being taken over by hedge funds, um, I think, you know, the major battle will be for what happens with RBS, which is still, you know, 82% taxpayer-owned. Um, there are a couple of proposals being thrown around to turn RBS into regional banks. Um, given it's essentially already been nationalised, the question is, all well, you know, why isn't RBS acting in the public interest. Why is it that, you know, three, four years after the crisis, we still have things like LIBOR scandal, you know, involvements in rigging Forex, you know, GRG. So there's a question mark there in terms of, you know, whether we need to be looking at um, retasking these pure capitalist banks into something more socially useful. And again, in terms of the co-op, I think given its investment policy, ethical investment, um, it is a you know a milder form of capitalism, and you're seeing it obviously RBS. Uh, as I said, I think you know the, the battleground in 2015 will be more over the future of RBS than it will the co-op. So what's going to happen next with the cooperative group? The co-op. Sorry, my apologies. What's next with the co-op bank? Well, the co-op bank um, is still in need of money, which has got to come come from the co-op group. So the the, the deal. It's not finalised yet. And in a way, that's where the problem is with the group. In about a couple of weeks' time, the group is going to turn in its worst results in its history. Yeah. It's expected to show a loss of between £1 and £2 billion, which for a group of that size, this is the group, not the bank, um, is enormous. Having said that it's the group, not the bank, an awful lot of that is coming from the bank. So it's a question, really, of whether and how the group can raise the money that it needs to contribute to plug the hole in the bank's finances, its contribution. A lot of the money is coming from the hedge funds and from the other investors, but not all of it. And the, the group still has to find that money in the face of its own difficulties with other areas of the business as well. I mean, to clarify, it's got 7 million members, 4,800 shops, 90,000 staff. So if this group yeah. did, you know, let's say collapse, if it no longer existed, that would have major implications for a number of areas of, you know, a number of markets in the UK, but employment, all sorts of things. It's a, it's a, it's a big organisation in a number of areas. So what next, Joel? Oh, very good question. I mean, I think if you look at what the bank's proposing in terms of filling that black hole, I mean, they're talking about spinning off um, 50,000 hectares of sort of farms. Uh, they're talking about spinning off their renewable energy division, which has been one of the largest UK investors in onshore wind. So in terms of how they'll resolve that problem, I mean, you're inevitably going to see, you know, functioning viable assets, which are of great importance to members of the cooperative group. Uh, being sold off, which is going to be you know, hugely unpopular for a lot of members. Um, you know, given what we've seen with Ewan Sutherland, there's obviously been a whole range of um, management and governance issues raised. Um, hard to see how they'll be resolved quickly. Um, so I think you know the, the future of the co-op is very much up for the debate. And I think there are people within the co-op movement who would like to see this idea of a you know cooperative circular economy, where you know you start from the sort of ground co-op farms. And you move right through to you know consumer endpoint point of sale. Um, the whole supply chain being ex- exactly. Ethical. So I mean, I think the 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 problem here is that the groups can be have to f- force to sell off chunks of that supply chain, and um, whether that's palatable to members remains up for debate. Francis. You're yeah, I, yeah I, I think that's the same. I mean, you have to remember that that, that, that kind of control of the, of the supply chain was, was what they were trying to do. That's why they have farms and, and retail outlets. It's because the, re, the farms, the cooperative, 
cooperatively owned farms were supplying the cooperatively owned retail, outlet, retail outlets. That's no longer the case. Oh. And it's difficult to see how in the retail space they can be fully cooperatively owned throughout the supply chain like that without radical transformation of the whole production landscape in, in the UK. Now, or even even not even just in the UK. Um, now, that may be a, a, a holy grail to work towards, yeah. but we aren't going to achieve it anytime well, soon. I mean, this, to me, I mean, so we go back to, to Marx. You know, Marx says that with the development of the modes of production, the process of production itself becomes ever more socialised and the commodity becomes ever more complex. You know, and we can talk yeah. about global commodity chains and so on. It seems to me that in 21st century capitalism, the idea that you're going to have uh, complete over even over something. Look at the horse meat scandal, right? Nobody even knows. You've got you know subcontractors of you know investment vehicles or all you know all these kinds of you know you could be twenty degrees removed from even knowing where a specific ingredient in this yogurt's coming from. So the idea they're going to oversight their entire supply chain is pie in the sky in the twenty first century. Isn't well, it? I, we are seeing shortening of supply chains actually. Um, in a way, because of those sorts of issues and the difficulty actually managing a supply chain and complying with sort of regulatory requirements end to end, and the cost of doing that, which as um, production costs increase in emerging markets, for example, the cost differential between the West and the East is is diminishing, and so the the actual um, cost incentive to di- spread your supply chain around the world is is diminishing. So we are seeing supply chain chain shortening. We're also seeing movements like the localism movement example, trying to bring everything much closer to home. Oh, but if you want cherries in January, you're only going to get them from the Southern Hemisphere, right? Yeah, but if we should, should a cooperative like, like, the, like the co-op necessarily be selling cherries in January? Oh, no, I totally agree, but that's the point. If you want your cherries in January, if you want, you know, obviously... You know. These are the kind of ethical questions that, yeah. that a, an organisation like the co-op needs to be asking. Should they be operating on a much more local basis, yeah. using local produce, and therefore accepting and making a virtue out of the fact that we work with the seasons, we work with what is locally available, some things are out of season now, this is what's in season now. Should they be working more like that? It's those kind of questions that they need to be asking Very themselves. I would agree that there's you know, been a move towards um, shortening of supply chains. We're seeing you know, early evidence of kind of reshoring, people bringing yeah. you know, globalised manufacturing sort of you know, back home because cost of production has been driven down. I don't buy this reshoring thing in the UK. <laughs> energy's too expensive. I mean, in the US it's different because of fracking, but energy sure. in this country is too expensive. Rent's too high. Labor's too expensive. Well, I mean, it's not the same as the US. You've got cheap labor in the South, you've got abundant energy, and you've got cheap rent. I mean, it was reshoring a thing in the UK. I mean, there's no evidence. Well, I, the way workfare has yeah. been abused, I mean, <laughs> I'm me. not. I must admit, I'm unconvinced. I'm, I yeah. don't think we're going to get the heavy industries of the old back. Yeah. We're not. We're not going to get our steel production back from wherever it's gone to, China or something. Um, it's not going to happen. Um, I think, but that doesn't mean that the UK doesn't have... Um, it does have some manufacturing. Manufacturing is increasing a little bit. Um, but also it has huge strength in services, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. And okay. I don't mean just financial services. You mean legal services? You mean yeah, services generally. We, we I mean, as they say about the the UK, we've always been a nation of shopkeepers, and the shopkeepers aren't producing, are they? They're trading. Uh, I'm, I'm, okay. <laughs> so uh, we have how long do we have left? We have five minutes left. So I just want to, some brief points about ideally, what would you like to see with the cooperative group, the cooperative bank, but also these these kinds of values, and what's the the battleground for 2015 with regards to those organisations currently in state hands? So, RBS, um, is the cooperative movement is it a movement that's alive, vibrant? Is it going places? 
Yes, I think it is. But um, I I don't necessarily think that the co-op group as currently constituted can be part of that because part of my issue is I don't think the cooperatives scale up very well. I think they would be better to have a, a network of much smaller outlets working much more locally than this huge kind of industrial monolith. You think that's at odds with the actual yeah, values? Yeah, I think of the, it's at odds the with their values. Yeah. Yes. Sure. Uh, my thinking is that you know the, the co-op invariably is going to have to sort of refocus its business model to simplify. Um, I guess to go back to you know the founding values of you know, why people set up the cooperative in the first place, um, and yeah, there's certainly question marks regarding you know, the future of the banking group, um, you know, supermarkets, and it'd be I think for a lot of people a huge shame to lose the cooperative farms. So I think you know that may be one of the major battlegrounds moving forward. What do you think? Uh, do you have any uh, any any input from members about the farms? Do you know what's next? Because uh, uh, I'm led to believe that the farms broadly only produce wheat, right? So they only sort of make bread. Is that true? Yeah. Um, no, they do produce other things as well. I mean, you know, one part of the battle has been about look at all the things that they are producing, like cider and things like oh, that. Oh, right, OK. Yeah. They make cider. Or <laughs> um, these cooperatively run farms. And there's been quite a considerable amount of concern about what happens to cooperatively run farms that run on organic principles and things like that how, when they're how sold the into the private compete? sector. I mean, we know that farming is a hugely, hugely competitive business. It's yeah. essentially not profitable. So how do cooperatives compete in that environment? With difficulty. And I suspect that is part of the reason why the cooperative retail sector has relatively high prices com- compared to its competitors is actually the, the cost of the production is, is higher than it should be. On that note... Uh, thank you very much. You're listening to Navara FM. My name's Aramastani. Thank you very much, Francis. Joel, Pleasure. great guests. I learned today that the Co-op Bank isn't actually a cooperative. It's a PLC. There you go. Um, see you same time, same place next week. Bye.